our first panel, which is on representation, reputation, and manipulation. Um, our first speaker is Catherine Delafield, um, who is an independent scholar who's previously taught at the University of Leicester. She has published widely on life writing, including two very good monographs, um, Women's Diaries as Narrative in the 19th Century Novel and Serialization and the Novel in Mid-Victorian Magazines. And she's also published articles and essays on life writing as well. Um, today she'll be speaking to us um, on a paper entitled Our Concerns in Distant Quarters, Silence in the Letters of Jane Austen and Francis Burney. Thank you. Um, I'd like to spot thank Karen for setting up this paper rather well because I'm talking quite a bit about um, letters absent and present also. So at the moment of writing, the letters of the novelists Jane Austen and Frances Burney were ostensibly private. But both women were conscious th that a letter was not a wholly private communication and indeed exploited that fact. Ostensibly, their letters formed part of a domestic family responsibility one which Austin termed our concerns in distant quarters, and the letters negotiate their life-writing existence as a kind of shared news bulletin within their family circles. As recipients, or later custodians of the letters, the families have influenced the perceived life paths and life-writing of these women, and this despite the relative fame and celebrity of Austin and Burney in their own right. The silence in the letter archive of two well-known women writers was created by the conditions imposed on their life writing at the time of preservation and of publication. Celebrity brought scrutiny. This paper addresses the letter as a form of life writing for 19th century women and looks at the impact of archival suppression on the life transmitted through the family. Silences are not just for women unknown to us, but also created by this paper trail of undervalued documents and by the final word exercised by families over the created narrative. This paper addresses some of the issues of editing when the archive passes into family hands and revisits the material conditions of the letters of these two authors whose lives were both recorded and silenced in the mid-19th century. It's worth summarising briefly the 19th century family response to the life of these two authors. The letters passed into the control of female family members a sister and a niece, who became literary executors in 1817 and 1840, respectively. Jane Austen died in 1817, and a biographical notice by her brother Henry accompanied the first edition of Persuasion published the following year. This included in a postscript extracts from two letters. In 1870, James Edward Austen Lee's memoir appeared, using 36 more letters, ten of which were to Austin's sister Cassandra, who had died in 1845. In 1882, the Kent branch of the family came into possession of some 79 letters to Cassandra, along with ten others which had been stored for nearly 30 years by Austin's niece Fanny. These were published with copious commentary by her son, Austin's great-nephew Lord Brayburn, in 1884. Frances Burney, Madame D'Arblay, died in 1840, having involved her niece, Charlotte Barrett, in the act of editing her papers and of surviving a large circle of correspondence. Burney's life had already been included in her memoir of her father, Charles Burney, in 1832. After Burney's death, 
Barrett and other family members were then involved in the publication by Henry Colburn of the Diary and Letters of Madame D'Arblay in seven volumes in the 1840s, five volumes in 1842 and two in 1846. The letters were thus composed and then recomposed for public consumption and the availability of the journal letter archive is a significant factor in the transmission of the lives of the novelists into print. And yet the letter has in itself inevitable gaps and silences as the record of a life. It is dependent on the absences which generate the text and on the nature of both correspondence and correspondent. Liz Stanley, who has worked on the letters of Olive Schreiner, has theorised letter collections from the perspective of social science. She coins the term epistolarium, using four classifications of the collected letter. Firstly, letters might comprise the available material of the writer extant in the archive. But the epistolarium could also account for all her potential epistolary activity, that is to say, including what was not been preserved for whatever reason. Thirdly, it might be expanded to include the writer's own correspondence. And last but not least, it might be abridged for an edited published collection, derived or divorced from the manuscript. Austin's extant letters are contained within one volume. Bernie's have now extended to 25. The collections made of the letters in the 19th century range from Braeburn's two volumes to Barrett's seven. And both were also framed by memorial accounts and by acts of editorial choice. The potential epistolary activity is perhaps impossible to seek in the case of Bernie, who was an assiduous collector and journalist, as she termed herself. We have evidence of her many other correspondence. In the case of Austin, no letters to her parents and a very few to her brothers survive, none at all to Henry or Charles, three to James's son, the future James Edward, and a handful to Francis, the future Admiral. At the same time, we should also be aware that both novelists were practiced in the art of using the letter as a fictional literary device, which itself produced letter collections. Bernie's Evelina, published in 1778, was a full-blown epistolary novel in the tradition of Samuel Richardson. Austen was an admirer of both Richardson and Bernie, but she identified the drawbacks of the epistolary narrative and, indeed, of the life narrated in letters. Her early novella, Lady Susan, probably written in 1794, came to an abrupt conclusion for whimsical reasons of logistics. This correspondence, by a meeting between some of the parties and a separation between the others, could not, to the great detriment of the post office revenue, be continued longer. The authors, in their different ways, knew the range, permeability and narrative potential of the letter. And the letter was an authorised if potentially subversive means of self-writing by women of the period. Bernie initially addressed her journal to nobody and an introductory preface to this effect was included in the printed Darwin letters by careful chronological rearrangement. Bernie spent time away from her family on visits at court and in France, and she wrote journal letters to be shared amongst her sisters, her father and family friend Samuel Crisp. Austin was separated from her sister during trips to the Knight family in Kent, but Cassandra, according to her niece Caroline, burnt the greater part of their correspondence two or three years before her own death. <laughs> The relative size of the resulting archive is significant for the life-watching which results. Austin's surviving output of 163 letters has been described by John Mullen as compacted obscurity. 
It has nonetheless generated many biographies since the letters were released from family control in the late 19th century. On the other hand, 10,000 Bernie documents are still being recovered by the Bernie Centre at McGill University. And this is after Bernie reviewed and edited vast hordes of material in the last 20 years of her 87-year life. When threatened with their loss in 1815, she described them as my letters of all my life. And so the letters of the two novelists have been given a narrative form by the act of publication, despite, or perhaps because of, the actions of archival suppression. The first known letter by Jane Austen to Cassandra, dated the 9th of January 1796, begins thus with apparent, if we assume, accidental design. In the first place, I hope you will live 23 years longer, an innocent, unaffected and sisterly beginning. The letter first appeared in print in the 1884 edition of Austen's Letters, having been bequeathed to Fanny Knight in 1845. It is believed to have been sold in 1893 by the family of the editor of the letters, Austen's great-nephew, Lord Braben, but no manuscript copy has since been traced. Other letters have resurfaced after following this same trajectory, such as one which made headlines in the Daily Mail late last year. The Torquay Natural History Museum announced it was selling a letter from Jane to Cassandra, which contained the first ever reference to Pride and Prejudice under its original title of First Impressions, uh, in epistolary form, of course. This letter, dated January 1799, survived Cassandra's cull, which occurred at about the time of the Bernie Barrett publication <laughs> in the 1840s. After the 1893 sale, the 1799 letter became part of a collection of 4,000 documents owned by Hester Pengelly, daughter of the founder of the Torquay Museum. After her death in 1934, the collection was gifted to the museum and remained uninvestigated until 1989, when the manuscript of the letter then came to light. By contrast with that simple birthday greeting, the first volume of Bernie's Diary and Letters, published in 1842, begins with the publication of Evelina. This year was ushered in by a grand and most important event. At the latter end of January, the literary world was favoured with the first publication of the ingenious, learned and most profound Fanny Burney. I doubt not, but this memorable affair will in future times mark the period when chronologists will date the zenith of the polite arts in this island. This was a design planned by the publisher along with Barrett because of the volume of material and need to make an impact. I've written elsewhere about the framing devices contributed by the editor, the publisher and by Bernie herself and about the swinging <coughs> backlash against Bernie's apparent representation of herself in these first volumes. The suppression of the juvenile writings which predated this entry was based on commercial decisions but their absence added fuel to the fire of criticism about Bernie's self-representation. In fact, Bernie set herself up as a kind of family chronicler in the earlier writing, using a similar mock heroic tone. She wrote, for instance, on the 20th of February, 1774, but for my pen, all the adventures of this noble family might sink to oblivion, although we, you only know this from the subsequent editions of the early journals. Bernie also erased parts of her life in response to family considerations, as Barrett called them. Thus, for instance, the whole journal for the year 1776 was destroyed. The whole of what was written of this year is upon family matters or anecdotes, and I've destroyed it in its totality. She and Barrett were concerned about references to her fraught relationship with her stepmother and to the scandalous incident of her brother Charles being sent down from Cambridge for stealing library books. 
Sometimes it seems to have been easier just to burn the lot. The fictional editor of the novel Evelina describes the editor of letters being happily wrapped up in a mantle of impenetrable obscurity. And the lives of Barrett and of Cassandra Austin were themselves obscured by their various actions as editors. I've suggested previously that the way they handled their texts, as inherited in the 1840s, were not wholly unconnected. Other lives, too, were suppressed for reasons of propriety, such as that of the fiancé of Bernie's deceased son, Alexander. Mary Smith lived with Bernie during the last years of her life and petitioned to be excluded from the diary and letters. The letter form could easily exclude her, of course, because she was inevitably present, and so not a correspondent, valued or otherwise. It is in the letters of Charlotte Barrett, undervalued and incomplete in the British and New York public libraries, that we discern the knowledge, which was not printed for family reasons, that despite being engaged, the sainted Alexander was also keeping a mistress. Barrett, as editor, was in many ways struggling with the tensions later identified by Elizabeth Gaskell in her Life of Charlotte Bronte, written the following decade. The divided mind, according to Gaskell, which characterised the 19th century woman as author. When the original edition of the Diary and Letters, due to be ten volumes, was reduced to the eventual seven, this was another response to the changing market for published diaries and court gossip. The deliberate conflation of Bernie's later life meant that her last 20 years were fitted into some 40 pages and were governed by the need to re-establish her as a domesticated woman, a wife and mother writing for the benefit of putative grandchildren, uh, grandchildren she never had. Brayburn in 1884 was wary too of other forms of life writing which informed his edition of Austen's letters and he alluded among others to Bernie, Gaskell and his own cousin Austen Lee. Aunt Jane could be more readily constituted as a Christian and everyday woman because the scant evidence was when swamped with family detail. Austen's life and the silences in it have given rise to speculation and creative interpretation. Bernie's attempts to manage her life writing were tortured in the longevity of her reflections and resulted in regular bonfires. These silences have been filled with paper aggressively retrieved, in the words of Ellen Moody, although inevitably the use of the letter as a life-writing form can create both doubt and duplication. The scarcity of Austin material makes the occasionally overlapping text forgivable, but Bernie writes in much the same vein, and repetitiously so in the text recovered by the Bernie Project, to her husband, brothers and sisters about the terrible loss during the flight from France in 1815, just before the Battle of Waterloo. Loss of all the manuscripts I possess, all the works begun, middled or done, large or small, that my pen ever scribbled. All our giant manuscripts of my dearest father, his letters, his memoirs, his memorandums. And all my beloved Susan's journals and my own that she returned to me with every letter I've thought worth keeping or not had the leisure for burning, from my very infancy to the day of my flight. This summarises and re-emphasises for the 20th and 21st century reader the value of the papers to Bernie over her lifetime and a regular reflection on her place in her life, if not as her life. Inherited papers, papers begun, written, rewritten and in some cases never sent. The regular destruction of material is already evident and became a veritable bonfire towards the end of her life when letters also returned to her because of her longevity as a correspondent. She calls them my and our manuscripts and reminds her sister Esther of the meditated publication relative to her revered father. It is this premeditation which brought calumny and criticism onto Bernie and her editor Barrett when the edited collection purporting to be the whole appeared in the 1840s. 
Braeburn is quick to point out that Austen's letters form no continuous narrative and record no stirring events, whilst Burney's letters, he says, were probably written, if not for publication, at least with an idea they might someday be published. The Austen and Burney materials have ranged along this spectrum in their variously edited and expanded forms. The letter journal can thus contain a life and at the same time expand it when recontextualised by the epistolarium. The letters of Burney and Austen have been investigated for their absences and for their circles of influence. But William Merrill Decker has suggested that despite their value as documents, letters do not readily provide transparent access to history. And we must clearly take care about their access to her story as well. It must also be noted, however, that women might be excluded from history were it not for the journal letter. It was perhaps the only access to self-recording for women, despite its being an undervalued, undervalued, occasionally subversive, fragile and tentative channel of expression. The domestic responsibility, our concerns in distant quarters, becoming a form of self-writing. But letters were then hijacked by subsequent generations for the purpose of refashioning an image no longer palatable within the family circle. A circle of churchmen, MPs and Victorian spinsters or widows, to name but a few of the family members who had control of the Austin and Burney archives, who having tried to fashion them, then sold them and dispersed them to open up further the gaps and silences which can only be recovered through forensic investigation, whose traditions have overtaken the voices of the women who were published authors, although only within certain terms, when writing safely domestic letters under wraps on writing slopes and within drawing rooms. If the epistolary novel has, as one critic terms it, temporal doubleness, how much more will the edited, preserved and family-tailored letter collection evade final definition and veracity in its character of self-representation? Burney was constructing an image, as was Barrett, and indeed as was the publisher Colburn. In 1818, Henry Austin used the publication Persuasion and Northanger Abbey to begin the process of life writing, which, which obscured Jane Austen's life as a writer and James Edward Austin Lee composed his memoir of her in order to domesticate and diminish her place as a creative artist, although at the same time he could not resist releasing the manuscripts of her unpublished works, including Lady Susan, with the reprint of the memoir in 1871. <coughs> the editing and recirculation of the Austin and Burney materials provides many examples of a type of hostage letter, created by the sale of the original document, which is then revalued for textual presence and for reasons of celebrity and authorship, but not for context, content, or placed within her story. The letter as a piece of life writing occupies this dubious hinterland. It might record or pinpoint an action. It might provide an opinion at a given moment. It might translate feelings into words, but only for a given correspondent. Bernie was writing for an audience, and often with a view to publication, and this could not be withdrawn from the text, even had Barrett wanted it. Bernie's life has become engulfed in the uncertainties of a genre with a complex thread of existence and Austen's life has been woven out of threadbare materials into diverse accounts of a woman whose personal voice is mitigated by fiction and by the generic instability <laughs> of the letter form. Carol Howell, director of the London Founding Museum, has pointed out just recently that history is so rarely told in a female voice. She was talking about an exhibition of the written petitions of so-called fallen women, asking for their children to be taken into the care of the founding hospital. Despite being part of respectable families and their networks, the care taken of the archives of Austin and Burney suggests that their voice, their image, their brand, if you like, had also to be suppressed and managed within the family archive. 
At the same time, it was dispersed and put into the marketplace once the work of family mythologising was done. Their lives and documents as women were subject to control, valuation, appraisal and containment. Written, into, written to and so owned by the family, their lives were reappraised by celebrity. The gaps, fissures and silences made public by a recording device which operates in a no-man's-land of audience and communication channel, ranging from nobody to the novel-reading public. Rosemary Bodenmeyer has written about the unintentional plots created by the reading of private correspondence. She calls for a respect for the writerly fictionality of letters and so cautions against their use as a key to personality. I have here suggested that silences are not just for women unknown to us, but are also created by this paper trail of undervalued documents and by the final word exercised by families over the creative narrative. Volume and longevity left Bernie without a shape for her life, which was then created <laughs> by suppression and excision. Paucity of material and a one-sided, one-channel correspondence allowed the cryptic absences in Austin's life to be filled with the suffocation of family detail. Both had to be memorialised and silenced as domestic women in the mid-19th century, despite the evidence of their published works. Bernie might indeed have been writing of this predicament in a letter to her husband from Brussels when she finds herself short of clothes after the flight from Paris. Ceaselessly but too late, I regret not having had a better foresight of migratory destiny. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, um, for a really interesting paper. Um, we'll hold off on questions until the end. Um, our next speaker will be Sonia Di Loreto, who comes to us from the University of Torino, where she's an assistant professor of American literature. Um, and she's the author of a monograph on the literary public sphere in 19th century America, which has an Italian title that I, I won't try to pronounce. Um, <laughs> And her most recent research focuses on um, the transatlantic epistolary exchange. Yeah. Which will fit in very nicely. Um, okay. um, today, she'll be speaking to us um, on a title called um, The Memoirs of Margaret Fuller Ossoli, Translation, Erasure, and Critical Work in the Archive. Thanks for... Um being here, uh, thanks to Alexis and Lindsay for putting together this great conference, and uh, I apologize for my coughing. So, um, What I will present today is part of a larger research project on the idea of a transnational multilingual archive, and I can say more later. And I, and I, I will appreciate any feedback and thoughts that you might have on what I will present. My starting point today um, will be the Memoirs of Margaret Fuller Ossoli, which is a publication that three of Margaret Fuller's American friends, namely um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William Henry Channing, and James Freeman Clark, put together soon after Fuller's death. And here, so this is Margaret Fuller, this is um, the publication, and these are our men, Emerson, Channing, and Clark. Um, Fuller was somebody who will now define a public intellectual. She grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the early 19th century, 
became editor of The Dial, the transcendentalist magazine, and while for many decades she was mostly remembered for being the only woman in the transcendentalist circle of men, such as Emerson, Thoreau, and Alcott, in the last decades she has acquired recognition for, in fact, distinguishing herself from their cultural trajectory, not only for her feminist work, but also for her authentic interest in the, in the international landscape. After publishing Woman in the 19th Century, she started a regular collaboration with Horace Greeley's newspaper, The New York Tribune, living in New York City, observing and writing about the social landscape of the city. In 1846, finally, her dream of visiting Europe came true in the form of an assignment for the newspaper, and she became the first American woman to work as a foreign correspondent. Europe in those years uh, was, of course, extremely interesting, especially for a woman who was ardently waiting to become more militant in her politics. After visiting England and France, she settled in Italy, supporting and participating in the political experiment of the Roman Republic in 1849. She went on to marry one of the young Guardie Civiche, an officer of the Republican militia, and had a child. These two things, not necessarily in this order. After the demise of the Roman Republic, and after a lot of soul-searching about what to do next, she, with her husband and child, decided to go back to the U.S. and embarked on the merchant vessel Elizabeth in 1850. But they never arrived. They perished on the shipwreck of the Elizabeth on July 19th, off the coast of Fire Island, near New York. I'll recount it briefly her life because I really intend to focus on her death, more specifically in connection with the formation of her archive and the archive's generative force. I'm referring here both to the material archive that comprises the Fuller family papers, housed at the Houghton Library at Harvard, and the scholarly archive, the production of critical discourse centering on Fuller. Fuller's death was undoubtedly a tragic circumstance and produced contrasting reactions, including a sigh of relief on the part of some of her acquaintances, detractors, and probably also some of her friends. Even before her ill-fated transatlantic crossing, one of her closest friends, Rebecca Spring, with whom Fuller had shared part of her travels in Europe, advised against moving back to the US. In one of her last letters to Fuller, Spring exhorted her to reconsider her project of returning. And I quote here from the letter. I must now say my most important thing and stop. And that is that much as we should love to see you, and strange as it may seem, we, as well as all your friends who have spoken to us about it, believe it will be undesirable for you to return at present. We believe all you write here from there will be better received if, um, and that if you return, you will lose the power to write, as well as you would not be so happy, and your husband, Giovanni, and could not, could not be so happy here as in his own beautiful Italy. What could repay him? And what could with you take the place of such persons as the Brownings and others you mention? We are just a little while about Browning poems, which have been published here in two volumes. It is because we love you, we say stay. It is because we believe it best for you, and in this advising you, you have a proof of the true friendship and affection of Rebecca. And she signs off, unquote. 
In the future life in the US, the Ossolis as a couple would be a dissonance, and Giovanni Ossoli, the Italian who had been represented by Fuller's American friends, as a, a um, semi-literate, although well-meaning young man, would be an even more problematic figure because of his being a foreigner, as the reference to Italy implies. And I won't go into the Browning's reference here. As Charles Kappel writes in one of the most exhaustive biographies of Margaret Fuller, and I quote, all her friends, including Emerson, struggle to come to terms with this tragedy or known tragedy of her death. Anyway, however they treated or considered the event of Fuller's death, it is certain that her family and friends tried to recover whatever they could from the shipwreck, including all the writings that she was taking with her. The manuscript that Fuller had just finished on the revolutions in Europe and that she had mentioned in her numerous letters to family members and friends was, along with Fuller's and her husband's body, the most searched object from the wreck. Emerson sent Thoreau to come to the beach, look for and inquire about the Ossoli's remains and belongings. As it will become apparent from all the reports and from Thoreau's notes, he mostly tried to stop scavengers to get hold of things they would not value. Thoreau's notes uh, from those days have been uh, recently acquired by the Houghton Library at Harvard. I, I don't expect you to read that. It's, it's just for comfort. Um, have become, they've become part of what I will term the archive of Margaret Fuller's ghost manuscript. Fuller's death, and especially the void left by the absent manuscript of the Re European revolutions that was never found or recovered, generated an archive made up of fragments, objects, and texts collected from various correspondents and recovered from the shipwreck. Soon after Fuller's death, and more specifically once it became clear that neither her body nor her body of works would be returned to her family and her public, some of her closest friends started planning and working on, that, on what will be published in 1852 as the memoirs of Margaret Fuller Ossoli. Since there was no manuscript to keep uh, Fuller's intellectual legacy alive, the memoirs came to life. The collective effort of gathering material for the memoirs, which included also asking correspondents to send Fuller's letters and to send these packets of letters to them, allowed and initiated the creation of the material archive that now exists. It seems to me that the two major forces behind this archive are the silent ghost of the manuscript and the memoirs. The object of the memoirs and the missing object of the ghost manuscript embody two kinds of silence, and it would be germane to our conference today to ponder on their characteristics and the methodological challenges that they pose for scholars as absorbed in archival work. In the case of the ghost manuscript, the silence is the absence, the regretful loss of a definite work by Fuller, a work that possibly would have fused her intellectual endeavors with her life passions. The memoirs instead suggests another type of silence, the silence of the suppression and erasure, the silence of the substitution. But let's look more closely at the memoirs. 
As I have already mentioned, this work is the product of some of Fuller's American friends, with whom she had continued to correspond throughout her stay in Europe. Almost immediately after her death, um, they responded to Horace Greeley's urge to provide an official version of Fuller's life and writings. In fact, Greeley actually suggested the editorship of Fuller's papers to Emerson already in a letter dated July 27th. The shipwreck was on July 19th. The shared critical perspective on this work is that it is a ruthless cut and paste of fragments of letters center received by Fuller, pieces of a writing, um, what quotation from other works. And I, I will just show you briefly um, some example of the um, editor's work on, on the letters, so the, the markings. Um, it is indeed not only offensive to our current perception of censorship and authorship, but also to a serious consideration of Fuller's real contribution to American culture. Um, this, for example, is a letter uh, to her brother, and so it was all marked uh, with passages that had to be reproduced in the memoirs. In fact, the work that resulted in the memoirs is flat in the sense that the historical depth of the epistolary exchanges was evened out, and it is homogeneous because the multiplicity of languages typical of Fuller's writings was normalized and standardized and everything was turned into English. In one of the earliest um, studies on the memoirs, by um, an essay by Belgel Chevigny entitled The Long Arm of Censorship, Meat Making in Margaret Fuller's Time and Our Own, published in 1976, she warned about not only, and I quote, the compromises the editors made with their texts, unquote, but also her own times um, her own time's urge to temper Fuller's free individuality. While Chevigny mostly dwelled on the political and moral challenges, um, and I quote, that Fuller's life posed, unquote, noting that the memoirs, editors, noting the memoirs, I'm sorry, editors' persistent effort by omission or addition to make over the moral image of Margaret Fuller, especially in the two areas of sacred and profane emotion, or religion and passion, unquote. I would like to turn my attention to another issue, the problem of the multilingual status of Fuller's writings and the question of translation. When discussing Fuller's major, innovation, major innovations in the 19th century American culture, Colleen Boggs emphasizes how Fuller's posthumous works are all missing one important trait, the practice of translation. And I quote from Boggs here. The literary loss extends to her publications and surviving manuscripts, which were disemboweled by a group of her friends. Their primary aim seems to have been to repatriate Fuller by erasing the central feature of her theory of a multilingual American literature, that is, translation. Fuller had been known in her lifetime as a translator, but her literary executor, her brother Arthur Fuller, purged books over the translations they contained, and their book-length translations passed out of print." Unquote. 
One of the examples of the glossing over uh, the linguistic richness of Fuller's epistolary exchanges is our correspondence with an Italian aristocratic lady, Costanza Arconati. When the two first got, got acquainted and during the first stage of their friendship, the women would write in French or in English. Later on, however, they started to communicate in Italian once Fuller settled in Rome and in Florence. In the memoirs, the only language transpiring from this correspondence is English, with only one sentence in French used by Emerson as an epigraph to one of the chapters. The switching in languages that marked not only Fuller's increasing fluence in Italian, but also the increasing intimacy of the two friends got, gets erased in the memoirs. If a preoccupation, maybe, concerning the audience of the memoirs, who would have probably preferred to read the text only in English, perhaps inspired the editors to discard everything that could not fit the national frame that they designed, they designed for Fuller, others' more private concerns guided some of the other editing labor. <clears throat> and this is the uh, letter I'm referring to. In a letter from Paris written by Fuller to Emerson after having met Thomas Carlyle in England, and it was written in 1846, one has to face the heavy marks left by the editors of the memoirs that once and for all hid what was written by Fuller. Emerson and Carlyle had a long history of epistolary exchanges and collaboration, and Fuller, in her letter, spoke very candidly about Carlyle. While the letter should read, and it's, it's difficult to read this, but um, of you he spoke worthily as he seldom writes to you and most unlike the tone of his prefaces so that for the moment I was quite reconciled to him. In the memoirs, the passage was erased and substituted by a short sentence. Of you he spoke with hearty kindness. In the transition between private and public, between manuscript, manuscript and published, certain choices became permanent. And, as in the case of the erasure of the, um, the translation work, the immobilized, um, that immobilized the language into a normative English, so the comments written by Fuller were transformed in a more benevolent representation, aimed to please, most of all, the immediate audience of the letter and, at this point, I think, of the memoirs, Emerson. And these are other examples from uh, working uh, in the archive of uh, these marks. If both the absent manuscript and the memoirs can be associated with death, and to be more precise, Margaret Fuller's death by water and its generative force for the creation of an archive, they exemplify two models of temporality. Drawing from Dana Luciano's study on grief in the 19th century America, I would like to propose a reading of the absent manuscript and of the memoirs as a way to meet some of the methodological problems inherent in the archival work. In her book, Arranging Grief, Luciano states, and I quote, by the 19th century, grief had become something to be shared rather than shunned, unquote. Grieving for an absent beloved allowed the creation of a spatial temporal dimension 
suspended by the progressive time of the everyday. Considered in this perspective, we could say that the absent and silent manuscript is this rapture in progressive time and represents what Luciano defines, and I quote, the slow time of deep feelings, unquote. Very similar to the personal, intimate, and unorganized time of the archive. The editors of the memoirs, on the contrary, did not allow themselves to grieve, since they immediately engaged in a temporality that was progressive, measurable, and ultimately capitalistic-oriented in their desire to realign and reorganize a life, Fuller's, that had been lived outside of the American protocols of femininity and national belonging. By reframing Fuller's work within a traditional nationalistic idea of literature, they function not only as literary executors, but also as custom officers, complying with the strict borders regulations of the land. I would like to conclude, therefore, with a suggestion, um, a suggestion to look at the archive of Margaret Fuller works and the material archive as a palimpsest, made of layers, but also made of the relations between these different surfaces and interventions. The first person who alerted me to consider Fuller's work as a palimpsest was her friend, Costanza Arconati. If Fuller's writings have always had the quality of a rich profundity with her constant engagement with genealogies of women, for example, and I'm thinking here of women in the 19th century, or her acknowledgement of cultures and languages other than English in her work as a translator, even her letters are complex systems both conceptually and materially. In a letter written to Fuller in December 1847, Costanza Arconati illustrates some of the difficulties in reading Fuller. And the letter was originally in French, so I'm going to read it in French and apologize in advance. Um, Ma chère amie, votre dernière lettre m'a mise à la torture. Je l'étudie depuis huit jours. Comment ferait d'un palimpseste? Il y a la difficulté d'écriture d'abord, et puis les papiers transparents, de sorte um, que ce qui est écrit sur une page, page passer sur l'autre et se confond avec ce qui est écrit sur l'autre. À l'avenir, prenez, je vous prie, de très gros papiers, du papier de cuisine. My dear friend, your last letter has put me to torture. And um, here I'll show you. These letters in French and uh, also the letters in Italian are translated in the archive. So there are these little, these small booklets which are not authored. Um, and so it's interesting to see that, that those letters have been also crystallized in those translations. My dear friend, your last letter has put me to torture. I studied for eight, I studied for eight days as one would a palimpsest. First, there is the difficulty of the handwriting. Then the paper is so transparent that what is written on one page is seen through upon the other, and it is confounded to what is written there. In future, I beg you, to take very thick paper, kitchen paper. Reading Fuller's letters can be torture, a constant suffering that contains the frustration of not understanding, simultaneously the desire for decoding the handwriting and the meaning of the text. Through this hermeneutical effort described by Arconati and through the typical temporality of the archive, 
with its non-linear, non-progressive way of reading. In, in an archive, we read in circles. We go back and forth. We read multiple texts at the same time. We dwell on the same texts for a long, long time. We can disengage Fuller's work from her literary executors and reestablish her in a much larger spatio-temporal dimension. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maria. We now move on to our, our final speaker of the panel, um, Baptiste Moniz. Um, he has a PhD from Canterbury Christchurch University, where he focused on biographies of missionary women from 1895 to 1916, who he argues were portrayed as adventure heroines as much as Christian exemplars. And today, I think he's speaking to us about one of them. His paper is titled one of the most heroic figures of the age, representing Mary Mitchell's lesson. Okay, so I just would like to say that this is part of a, a larger uh, work I'm uh, currently um, researching, and also um, that it is a whole material that you will have during this uh, session, only this uh, endowed for those who are fortunate enough to possess one. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I seem to be a bit short uh, of them, I didn't expect um, that size of the audience, I must say. So um, this paper will focus uh, on the representation or the misrepresentation of uh, Mary Mitchell Slessor, uh, who was born in 1848 and died in 1915. She was a Scottish missionary to Nigeria from 1876 until her death. Uh, so she was a missionary for the United Presbyterian Church and she probably still today is one of the most famous uh, Scottish missionaries and perhaps also public figures um, uh, to this day still. And um, I'm talking about her first biography, Mary Slessor of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary, which was published in, 18, in, in 1916 by William Pringle Livingstone. So he was editor of the uh, record of the United Free Church of Scotland. And uh, the United Free Church of Scotland, in short, is uh, the association of the United Presbyterian Church with the Free Church of Scotland. So Slessor was uh, at first associated with this United um, Presbyterian Church, and that's how this uh, other society came to publish her biography. Um, what I want to say uh, in short is that uh, um, he represented her in two different fashions. At uh, first, as a loving mother, and I think this point should not be questioned because it is uh, very much uh, um, agreed uh, on uh, in the later biographies and researches and so on. Uh, she adopted several children, um, partly because they were abandoned uh, in, in the bush. And so uh, the mission compound, wherever she was, because she traveled a lot, uh, were um, uh, full with children, so to speak, uh, according to several uh, biographers. And we can still see today uh, statues of her with her uh, children uh, in Nigeria. So she was famous for that. The local population named her in the local tongue uh, mother to all people. So I think that's an established point. Very well. Um, and, but then Livingstone is also representing her 
as what he calls a white queen. And this was a representation of her which was famous in biographies up until the 1950s, after which um, biographers rarely uh, sp uh, speak so much of it and they turn again to her as a loving and caring mother. But this uh, second portrayal of her as this um, white queen um, strikes quite a dissonance, a sharp um, discordance, I would say, with um, the first one of a loving mother, because she's represented then as being impassioned, uh, quite violent and aggressive with the local population, and also a very much sarcastic um, uh, with them. So um, I think it's uh, this last point on which I'd like to uh, focus with you. And this paper is intending to show, in short, that he misrepresented her life. And um, the silence in the archive, which is the title for today, is not only the silence of her letters, which I am uh, somewhat uh, quoting um, in a moment, but also the silence of whom she was. I think she was censored up to a point, if I might say, because her life in the book is not necessarily what it was in reality, and uh, Livingstone is cutting, if I might say, some parts of her, uh, some essential elements of the missionary. And this, these are the two aspects which I'm focusing on uh, right now, and I think they are quite complementary by talking about silence. It's not only the silence of the letters, but really of a whom she was or she uh, was made to be. Um, so that's what um, I really like to, to say. So uh, now um, I can say that uh, she was thought to be the woman Livingstone among the missionaries, uh, or again, the most remarkable woman missionary of her age. And I will really skip over her childhood, mainly because um, most biographers agree with Livingstone. They just, of course, uh, give uh, further insight on her uh, first years, and this is also a fascinating period of time for whomsoever um, should be interested in her. But uh, I think this is not the most relevant today. <laughs> so let us simply say that she, she was born in the suburbs of Aberdeen in late 1848 to a shoemaker and a weaver. And when she was 11, she was uh, compelled to enter weaving factories herself uh, because uh, she had uh, five siblings and she was the eldest daughter. And so, of course, she was much in charge of them with uh, their mom. Um, so Livingstone writes that um, in time, her wage was indispensable for the support of the home. And eventually, she became its chief mainstay. And you can read on the end out that um, he sums up her life as follows, um, her home life. Her life was one long act of self-denial. All her own inclinations and interests were surrendered for the sake of the family, and she was content with bare necessaries so long as they were provided for. As I said, most biographers agree, so I uh, will not dwell on that point. Let us say uh, that she was... Uh, um, a while last year, according to Livingstone and to herself, in fact, and to later biographers, she was a tomboy or the toughest of a tough breed of girls. And then she moved to Nigeria in 1876, and in 1880, she was given charge of her own uh, mission station. 
And well, Livingston writes that she was practically our mistress, and this was important for her, and he explains in short that she wanted to leave uh, most of her wages at home with her family, her sisters, and uh, her mother. And so she took to living as an African. Uh, um, she lived in local huts, uh, while she lived uh, alone with the children, which she had uh, adopted, but she did not live in mission compounds like most of our missionaries. She ate local food. She uh, was also known to walk barefoot. And uh, additionally, uh, she, uh, on occasions, uh, could uh, stay for some time uh, in harems with uh, the chief's wives, although, of course, in an appropriate way for a Victorian missionary. But this is not uh, something that would have been still very usual. Um, so she wanted to understand them very much, uh, but at the same time she did that uh, for practical reasons, for, for the money. And so that's uh, one of the reasons why she was so different from uh, other missionaries. At the same time, it is known that uh, she uh, protected her children, uh, the children which were foster children in, in essence. Uh, for instance, uh, on one occasion she um, protected them from an uh, hippopotamus at the risk of her own life. And also she could trample many miles at night in the bush or um, in the forest with wild beasts and regardless of the weather because she needed more medication or more milk for the babies. So uh, that is part of what made her so uh, particular, especially according to later scholars. And she was also unafraid to face uh, armed warriors um, with spare swords and guns because she wanted to uh, spare an innocent's life or, um, or um, prevent a conflict. But then, um, this is the part which um, I called on the undoubted the, the White Queen, and I read this extract, which uh, you can read. She ruled many tribes she came in contact with all the dignity um, and power of a queen. She subdues and controls the people who obeyed her like children. Uh, she was a woman who possessed an influence and a power over the Negroes, unmatched in its way by that of any other white. So you can see that this is a mix of quotations, but what I want to um, emphasize here is the fact that um, this is recurrent throughout uh, the biography. Uh, this aspect is really quite an important one. And this is where um, that um, becomes interesting for the censorship, of course, because I strongly suspect that Livingstone was intent on representing her as a proud British ruler for his um, audience. But we can note that in his next biography of her, published only the year afterwards, in 1917, and mostly written for children, this aspect of a white mother mostly disappears, and as does her arrogance and her violence and impatience and so on. And I suspect he may have discovered that his countrymen did not uh, so much like this aspect as uh, he might have intended them to, because they did not think that um, a missionary, a Christian missionary, should behave uh, in this way. And so I spare you the details and uh, uh, extracts, but uh, in essence, we can read in several parts of the um, of the book that uh, she eat the, the local people, which she calls the natives, um, 
because she wanted to make them uh, obey her, uh, because they were disrespectful, because they kept talking while uh, she was talking, and so on and so forth. He talks about uh, muscular Christianity. Um, and uh, she held palavers or uh, courts, local or customary courts, in which she acted as supreme and sole judge. And uh, the fact was that in these moments, especially as she was very uh, impassioned and irritable, and some, uh, some ba um, scholars in 1970, uh, Christian and Plummer writing together, explained that, in fact, she was uh, very much uh, bent on uh, spreading the gospel uh, around, uh, because she wanted the people to know about um, Christ. And um, she was very frustrated because she could not do so when she was um, compelled by circumstances to stay with a particular tribe. Uh, because there were, there were no, uh, so, so to speak, reinforcement to take her place. And um, that um, was translated in real life as this impatience and uh, this violence. Um, and we can read this quotation here, uh, which is taken from one of our, of our own letter. There is a constant run of people from all around seeking advice and having palavras settled. And though this is the most important work, creating public opinion and establishing just laws and protecting the poor and getting the hold on the people, it is not work I like. I only wish someone could come and take it up. And we cannot find this, of course, in Livingstone's biography. And I do suspect he didn't want to show that uh, this white uh, mother, the mother to all people, didn't like this work of establishing just laws and uh, protecting the poor and so on, because it probably would not have um, sounded well off, so uh, he thought. And this is a case, I suspect, of censorship, in a way. And there is also, I was talking of censorship to your life. Well, uh, let us read uh, what Christian Plummer uh, tell us in 1970. Not all of Mary's fellow missionaries would have felt able to associate themselves with the customary courts. By accepting local codes to such an extent, they could be said to entrench many of those customs the church was born to oppose. Well, of course, uh, Livingstone would not state so, and again, these are only the choice parts I could quote um, um, extensively on the topic, but uh, let us also say that Mary Kingsley, who uh, met um, Mary Slessor in 1895 during one of her travels, uh, Mary Kingsley thought that Slessor has lost uh, most of her missionary ideas uh, and bolized the native chiefs in their own tongues. And also, um, she, uh, Kingsley wrote that Slessor is regarded as mad and dangerous by the other missionaries. Um, <coughs> now, naturally, we would not have a Livingstone uh, writing about this because he's very much uh, wanting to present this commendable missionary um, to uh, his audience and his countrymen. Um, on a side note, you might uh, be aware that um, Janet Erdage, uh, or Erdage, in 2009, she writes another biography of Slessor, and uh, she makes it clear that Slessor would have been surprised had she known this opinion of Kingsley. She didn't think that uh, uh, she was thought uh, mad and dangerous, and also um, she would just have said that she did not lose her missionary ideas, but she was just different from other missionaries. Um, so, just to say that um, 
uh, whether uh, she was mad or, or not is not for us to uh, discuss today, but I wanted to show that uh, um, Mary Kingsley's opinion are also hers. And so and it's just about saying what Livingstone will not say, because it's important if uh, Kingsley could think that several missionaries thought that, whether it was real or not. Uh, and But we can't know it through the first um, life account of her life. Well, it's quite significant. And uh, I'd like to go um, with you for this quotation, which is, I think, very interesting. Um, Mary was inured to the flies, mosquitoes, cockroaches, and rats, whatever mission ladies said themselves strenuously to combat. In later years, her devoted friend, Miss Peacock, shared a mud day with Mary and was unable to sleep for the rats. Mary swore it was her imagination. There are new rats here. But next night, burned by her restless visitor, she flung out an arm in her sleep, out of habit crying, Get out your brood! And when Miss Peacock came to breakfast with a black eye, was very penitent indeed. Now, of course, if Livingstone had said that, um, it would have shown that she was eating the people in her sleep, out of habit. She was indeed uh, more violent than he would uh, ever portray her as. And also while she's eating another missionary uh, and a white woman, um, all the more. So um, that's why we can find this in 1970, more than 50 years after the publication of her um, first biography. And this sounds like some, um, um, some censorship of uh, whom she was, in a way. And uh, I call the next point a successful missionary. Uh, this means basically that uh, Livingstone thinks that she was successful even though um, it was very difficult to see any, any uh, results. But uh, not everyone uh, agrees with that. Several uh, biographers uh, and scholars uh, write afterwards that uh, she could not put an end to um, the drink problem, to killing for witchcraft, to the poison bean trials, and to uh, murders. And um, Bushan, writing in 1980, uh, goes so far as to claim, I quote, uh, by the time Mary joined it, the mission had converted few people to Christianity, and indeed it, to, it would continue to have little success on that score for the next 50 years. It's interesting to see that he's actually quoting uh, an extract from um, Cesar, uh, telling that she she warns the people, as um, the Englishmen and so on, that they should not expect m many results. And uh, the extracted quote is coming from the very record which Livingstone himself edited. But you can find that, of course, in the biography of Slesser. Um And also uh, an extract from Robertson in 201. They decided that allowing the white god into their lives was doing no harm and slotted him in alongside his contenders. So she might have been less successful than he wanted uh, to uh, argue with um, Livingstone. And I'd like to um, go through uh, this uh, um, extract. This is an extract from my thesis. Um, there was a band of female warriors who actively took part in the killing or were invading the tribal villages and insisting on provisions being given to them by the inhabitants. Accordingly, they charged into the village, firing their guns and shouting, waving swords and torches in the air, declaring they would steal your missionary, 
whether the Advaitis should give them money and other gifts. Slessor happened to be inside a hut with Maimi, who was all for going out there and giving these women a piece of her mind. Mary made for the door, but Emmy got in front. A huge statue blocked the doorway. Mary made to push past her, but Emmy stood her ground, just as stubborn as Mary. With one hand, she gently pushed the bristling redhead back into the hut. Ma, you will stay, was all the large woman said, and Mary meekly sat back down on the floor. And I, I love this quotation in a way because, so Maimi was um, um, a friend of uh, Mary Slessor, uh, sister to one of the chiefs. And, um, and it's uh, very interesting because Raleigh, it does show that she could not do whatever she wanted with the local population. And she was probably not the powerful white queen she was portrayed as. And uh, the last extract is coming from uh, two of her letters. So it shows the censorship and the silence of these letters. What I call the proud British, uh, it's about a relationship with the British. Um, and when she writes, um, 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 she recounted the attack of a Nigerian woman by a party of soldiers, striking her with a gun. She also complained about government men who were pillaging the plantains from villages. Only a few months afterwards, she reiterated these, these accusations, writing that the men of her district commissioner, with whom she was very angry, had every chief insulted, <laughs> chained, and tied, uh, beaten, and women and, my, and men alike were beaten and kept in anger and fear, while their villages were plundered clean of everything. The most frustrating thing must have, must have been her own inability to prevent this from happening, I quote, all the time I had to sit and bear it. So that does show that uh, Livingstone um, does not uh, portray her as she was, I think. And also, um, there is this censorship of um, her correspondence, which quite changes both uh, what she did and also her own uh, ideas and uh, sometimes feelings, like in this last case. Um, so uh, thank you very much.